Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Louise Palenker. I'm Fritz Coleman. And our appointed mission is to escort you down a path full of fascinating media and encourage you to partake in the offerings. Our guest coming up is author, political consultant Michael Reagan. But first, let's learn what Fritz has been consuming and enjoying this week. Fritz. Well, Mike is going to like this, uh, Weiss, because okay. the book I'm recommending this week is The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James L. Baker III. James A. I'm Baker III. James He's going to have Baker? that much into his name. you got to get it right. Oh, James A. Baker. I'm sorry. Well, you were reading it off the screen. I was going by memory. <laughs> anyway, I'm sure Mike will have some comments about how influential he was in his dad's administration. This is the story of a man who has been called one of the most significant leaders in modern American government, maybe the most powerful man in our country who was not the president. He was Ronald Reagan's chief of staff. He was also a delegate hunter, a campaign manager for 25 years worth of Republican presidents, Treasury Secretary, Secretary of State. It's written by Peter Baker, who's a White House correspondent for The New York Times, and Susan Glasser, who is a New Yorker staff writer. And it's no coincidence that we decided to mention this book this week because Peter Baker and Susan Glasser are doing a live streaming event to benefit the Reagan Foundation. And they're doing it on Wednesday, October 14th at 4 o'clock. You can go to the Reagan Foundation website to sign up. And if that piques your interest, the Foundation's doing another one on October 21st. We'll which will be equally interesting with General H.R. McMaster. He's got a book out as well, another one of those inside the administration from uh, a great uh, career militarist, but a, a pretty interesting guy. And, Wheezy, my next pick, I know you're going to have some opinion about this. Okay. It's this documentary on Netflix called Social Dilemma. This is really a conversation starter. This is what you expected social media is doing to us, our brains, our behaviors, but now there's proof from the guys who designed this stuff and admit it. And Wheezy, all I could think of was, this is the realizing of the computer HAL in 2001, A Space Odyssey, where we create this monster, that is social media, and it's now taken on a life of its own, and it's out of our hands, and we can't do anything about it. Well, I don't think we create a monster. I think we create cool stuff and then we unleash it and then we realize its potential and then we become greedy and then we design algorithms that are actually not all that healthy for people because what you find when you create these algorithms and you're just, you're kind of, your goal is to get people to uh, continue watching or continue looking and they tend to do that more when they're terrified than when they're kind of okay and ready to go face the rest of their, their day. So it's kind of this mad scramble for more content that will, um, that will soothe you and you really just find things that enrage you. And the other thing about the algorithms is that what, they, what they've learned is that people will consume myths much more readily than they will consume facts. So that's because most people would rather read a novel than read nonfiction. So because myths are exciting and there's dragons and things. And and so the myths that they pump out into the social sphere, you know, tend to be really uh, captivating and people consume them. And then that leads them. So if you start with, so, let's say, flat earthers, you can even target people that are willing to believe that the earth is flat because they're, they're going to be fertile soil for you to plant your myth because there are already people that have kind of extended their or suspended their disbelief. And so yeah. you can toy with people and it's tempting. And that's, I think, the monster that it has become. Well, that, that, I'm, I'm, I'm not adverse to the technology. I'm just adverse to a room full of 15 guys with IQs over 160 thinking up ways to manipulate human behavior. That's the scary thing to me, because where, yeah. where do you draw the line with that? Well, what did you think of the end of the piece where everybody was talking about possible solutions? Did that give yeah, you... Yeah, I like that. And, and I also like the fact that a lot of the, the spokespeople, the talking heads that appeared throughout this thing were people that felt guilty about what they did. It was like the uh, Oppenheimer syndrome, where after he invented the uh, A-bomb, he decided this is the worst thing I could have done for humanity and spent the rest of his life apologizing for it. So, it Well, was I'm sure that. the guy who invented fire was upset 
the first time a building burned down. But <laughs> Good point. We, we just, it's up to us to use what no, we have is. and to create balance. I mean, I, I just think that the key to life is balance. I agree. We well, need, we, I, 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 I think it speaks to this really current topic, this conundrum that we haven't been able to solve yet, which is fake, red flagging fake news and uh, non-factual material on social media and whose responsibility that is. Is it, the, is it the platform's responsibility? Is it Congress's responsibility to provide uh, laws? Th that's, that's the argument right now. So I just thought it was an interesting adjunct to that. But it was, wow. I mean, it's, what's the next 10 years of this technology going to be like? If we're, if we're intelligent enough as a species to create this technology, then we are intelligent enough to understand the dangers and to mitigate them. And well, with that, I think I'd like to introduce our please. guest. He is Michael Reagan. Michael Edward Reagan is an American television personality, political commentator, Republican strategist, former radio talk show host, and author. He is the adopted son of former U.S. President Ronald Reagan and his first wife, actress Jane Wyman. Mike and I work together. This is not part of your Wikipedia page, this paragraph I wrote myself, Mike. Uh, but I think I'd like to submit it to include it on your Wikipedia page. Here we go. Mike and I worked together for many years at Premier Radio, and I know him quite well, but I did not know this disturbing fact that I discovered, Mike, on your Wikipedia page, which reads, in 1965, the FBI warned Ronald Reagan that in the course of an organized crime investigation, it had discovered his son, Michael, was associating with the son of crime boss Joseph Bonanno, which would have become a campaign issue had it been publicly known. Reagan thanked the FBI and said he would tell his son to discreetly discontinue the association. Michael, explain yourself. I was going to Arizona State University. That's enough. <laughs> I was going to ask you. I tell you, that's the great greatest defense that I have for all of this. By the way, yeah. you know, I got a call from my dad, who said, "I just, you know, the FBI had just called him to let him know that, in fact, you know, uh, I was associated with Joe Benalla Jr., who, by the way, it's really interesting. And and if I share with you. I'm Ronald Reagan and Jane Wyman's son, and people treat me a certain way or expect me to act a certain way based on who my parents are. They expect me to be conservative. They expect me to be this. They expect me to be that. And it's really interesting that you're sitting with Joe Bedard Jr., and at that time you're looking for seniors. So they're looking at his house in, in Phoenix, Arizona, and the people would treat Joe Bonanno Jr. as if he was already a criminal, already a bad guy, and it was already part of the family. And you sat, I sat there and would watch this and say, they're treating him based on who his father is, just like they treat me based on who my father is. And so we became friends. And I sat down with him after the call, explained to him about that. He said, not a problem. And I walked away. We never talked to each other ever again. But again, it was Arizona State University. Exactly. Well, you know, we wanted to talk about that. That that's a great topic. That I, Weezy, you go first, but I want to get back into that, Mike. The whole uh, extra burden of being the son of a really accomplished uh, male. This is an edible thing. It's a whole bunch of things. But I want to talk to you about that because well, I, I find it was a problem in my family, and I just want to talk to you about that. How you navigate those. Dicey waters, but I won't easy to ask the first question. Or did you ask a question? I guess uh, the question that. is pretty much in tune with what you're singing there, Fritz. Um, I wanted Mike to talk about what it was like to grow up in the Reagan Wyman spotlight, which was a show business Hollywood spotlight initially. Well, you know, back back in the day, Louis, I mean, all of us really basically grew up in boarding schools. We have nannies, we had maids. First grade, I was in boarding school at Chadwick. Uh, they're at Palisades Peninsula, but that's where all the kids went. Uh, we get taken there on a Sunday night, and we would cry ourselves to sleep. Uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Dad would pick me up and bring me home, and I'd go to the ranch with my father on the weekend and back on Sunday night back to school, except for one year, I think, when I was in third grade. So it, 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 where everybody thought, gosh, you're so lucky because your parents are, we were sitting at school crying ourselves to sleep at night thinking, no, you're the lucky one because you get picked up every day by your mother 
or your father or your nanny, whoever it might be, and take it home to have dinner with your parents. And, and so a lot of us grew up really ticked off, mad at our parents to see all the books that came out of that generation of children from Hollywood because we were, excuse me, pissed off that we were part of that other group. And, and you could either allow that to define your life or get to a point and say, you know something, I, under, I understand. And as I got older, I really understood. They really didn't have much choice. The industry was different back then. They were on location a lot. They were gone from home a lot. But when you're five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, you're not thinking like an adult. And, and I was lucky enough to finally come through that with a lot of help from my wife, Colleen, and from others around me. While we're talking about that, uh, Mike, um, regardless of time and the amount of time, and your your dad's time was limited because he had the weight of the world on his shoulders, but did he allow you to become who you are? Did he celebrate your strengths? Was there pressure to sort of follow in the template he had established, or did he celebrate you for who you were as an individual? No, he kind of celebrated for who you were. He didn't, nobody was, nobody in the family, I used to joke, Maureen, I used to joke, they don't want us in the industry because they don't want the competition. Um, <laughs> what can I tell you? Um, but no, they, my mother more so than my dad, maybe, because I spent more time with my mother uh, later on in my life, of course. Uh, they were divorced when I was three years of age. Um, but they most likely, they probably let me live my life, even though they thought a lot of the things I did, like befriending Joe Bonanno Jr. might have been a little silly, a little stupid uh, at the time. But I was a kid, I was in college. So they would shake their heads. But again, they never really gave me anything. They really, you know, at, at 10 years old, I, I, I was at, at a bicycle shop on Santa Monica in, in, in Beverly Hills across from Good Shepherd Church. Uh, where we went to church, found a 10-speed bike. And, you know, I said to my mom, I want a 10-speed bike. And my mom said, great, that's wonderful. Uh, sign right here. And what she meant was <laughs> I had to sign a note with my mother 10 years of age for her to loan me the money to buy a 10-speed bike that all the other kids in the neighborhood were having their mothers give to them without signing a note. And so I ended up selling, you know, Sunday papers in front of church on Sunday morning and giving back my mother the money she had loaned me to buy a 10-speed bike. You know, Louise talks about the fact she knew me when I was in radio. Uh, before I went to work at Premier, I was driving to San Diego back every single day to kick off my national show. I've been replaced by Rush Limbaugh on the local show in San Diego. So my motto was do unto others before they have a chance to do it to you again. <laughs> and we started a national show with absolutely no money. My first paycheck was a was a, uh, I think, a baseball cap from the Green Bay Packers. They still have it at the house because uh, they had no money. I was driving to San Diego, called my mother on the phone. You know, I said, Mom, things are a little tight. I'm not making any money. I'm kicking off this new show. Colleen's at home in L.A. You know, we got Cameron. We've got Ashley Marie, our little baby at the time. Can you help me out? And she said, yes. I said, great. What can you do? She said, I can tell you this. Shut up and keep driving. And she hung up on me. <laughs> wow. I said, excuse, I wow. said, excuse me? I called back. I said, did you hang up on me? She said, yes, I did. Why? She said, well, nobody died and said you didn't have to pay your dues like everybody else. So shut up and keep driving. Hung up on me again. Wow. And I did. I drove down to San Diego. We we started we doing this national show with no, literally no money. And then Premier picked me up, and I got started. But that show that I was driving to San Diego back every day, 262 miles round trip every single day, ended up lasting 19 years till I walked away from it. Or I'm sorry, 26 years till I walked away from it in 2009. Wow. So shut up and keep driving. That's what they taught me. That's what both my parents taught me. When my dad became governor, I was working on a trucking dock in L.A., Asbury Transportation Company, company loading oil well freight from 5 at night. To 1 30 in the morning wow so that the value my of hard work my and parents must have hated me <laughs> no i think they wanted you to feel the joy of accomplishment of having done it on your own 
Well, and my mom actually brought that up. She said, if I give you what you need and it become, you become a success to it, who are you going to, who are you going to applaud? Who are you going to applaud? Mm -hmm. and, and she was absolutely right. It was tough, tough, tough going. Uh, driving 262 miles a day, my car broke down to Checkpoint Charlie down there. One night, I called my wife on the phone and said, the radiator's out of Checkpoint Charlie. What should we do? And Colleen said, call AAA and have them tow you home. AAA came over and said, where are you going? I said, Sherman Oaks. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you know what that's going to cost? I said, I don't care. <laughs> Mike, do you think uh, your mom would have been a good political wife? No. Oh, no. I mean, I remember calling her one time. <laughs> Dad just given a speech, and I called her on the phone. I said, uh, hey, did you see Dad's speech? It was a great speech. She said, no, I didn't. But she said, you know, I heard that speech back in the 1940s. Didn't like it then, wouldn't like it now. Wow, your mother was a very strong person. Do you think your mm -hmm. mother was a better actor than your father? Yes. She was, the, she was the queen of the age. Academy Award, Best Actress. People forget Best Movie back in the 40s, Ray Milland, you know, Lost Weekend. People also forget 1951, Best Song with Ben Crosby in the Cool, Cool, Cool of the Evening. Nominated two other times for Best Actress. What, four Grammy Awards, two stars in the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Handprints and Footprints, and Grandma's Chinese. It's just me. Hollywood thought she was very good. Dad only has one star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Were they competitive? <laughs> find another industry. Were they professionally competitive? No, not not really. No, but it's interesting. As she passed away, I was going through her stuff. She actually donated money to my father's campaign for governor, campaign for president. Letters from dad to her, thanking her for the uh, for you know giving her money and giving money to the campaigns. I was wow. very surprised. I didn't know she was a Democrat or Republican. Never knew till I started going through her things. You know, after she passed away, but she was very quiet, held everything to her vest. And here's where she was really smart. I think my mother was much smarter than my dad. My dad was great politically, but my mom was smart. In 1950s, you'll love the story. 1950s, she signed to do a television show called Jane Wyman's Fireside Theater. They gave her a million dollar signing bonus. 1951. Wow. Think about that. And she took that money and put it into a self-liquidating annuity. And I asked her one time, he says, why'd you do that? She says, Michael, someday I'm going to be too old in Hollywood for one part, maybe too young for another part. And I just don't want to choose to act in a movie or a television show because I can't eat. I want to be able to choose what I want to do. And this is going to help me in the future. And, and that paid off to her. When she died in 2007, that was still giving her money every January. But it's interesting. She signed that in 1951, and she picked and chose what she wanted to do. 1981 happened. They come to her with a script called Falcon Crest. <laughs> yeah. And she ends up being the top-paid actress in, in television. Number one show on TV lasted nine years. And it was really a great lesson I learned from that. And a lot of people can learn from that, uh, that, you know, it may not last forever. You better figure out a way to soak it away so that you have a place to fall back on in the future. Mm -hmm. Now, as you became uh, a young man, your father was ascending into, into the world of politics, which must have magnified the pressure uh, on you of finding your own voice and your own place in the world. You know, how was that pathway for you? Well, when he was running for governor, obviously it was going to be a great way to get more dates. <laughs> I mean, I was 20 years old. <laughs> I'm thinking, hey, this is really going to open up the, the building. You know, it's just in 91, I went over to my dad and I at the uh, uh, at, at the hotel, and I said, well, what's the chance of getting a job? Because I thought all politicians <laughs> gave jobs to their children. And I found out my dad didn't believe in nepotism. And I went home thinking I should have voted for Brown. Uh, <laughs> he certainly believed, you know, in nepotism, if you will. Uh, it is hard to find your own voice. It's uh, a lot of people don't think you need a job. I had a job which I, when I was at Arizona State, uh, washing cars to help my income. Got fired from that job because I didn't need it because Ronald Reagan and Jane Wyman were my, were my parents. My son Cameron, who you know, still goes through that. My daughter Ashley, I mean, she's a teacher. Uh, but again, 
we all go through that because people believe, you know, well, you don't have to work because like the house we have, yes. it, and you know, I, I, I work my ass off you know, and, and we have a house that we bought. But if you ask people, 99.9% of the people think I live in Toluca Lake because my parents must've given me money. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I like to look at it this way. I like to look at the fact that maybe they didn't leave me a pot full of money because they looked at me and said, you know, Mike's going to be okay. Mike's going to be okay. We taught him to be okay. He's going to be okay. And, and, and so I learned a lot, but again, it's, it's, it's hard finding your own voice uh, because people sometimes don't want to hear your voice. When I did radio, what did your dad think? I don't know. What, you know, how about asking me what I think? <laughs> like I have, I have, I have a history, history also. But I, I did a lot of things people don't know. I was outboard world champion in powerboat racing in the 1960s. I set five world records of powerboat racing in the 1980s. I raised $2 million for the United States Olympic team and a lot of other charitable causes, if you will, by setting these, these world records. But when your father is president of the United States, it gets lost. Like, people always ask me, what do you do? <laughs> you know, yeah. Pay attention. You know, seven or eight books I've written. What have you done lately? That, that, that's exactly why I brought that uh, point up at the beginning. I think some children are emotionally better prepared to do that and be hardy enough to not let the success of their father crush them. Uh, uh, and, and uh, you know, have the be intuitive enough and, and be uh, be you know, creative enough to go out and carve your own little space out from under the umbrella of your father. I think every child does that. And I don't want to be too specific to violate the privacy of some of the people in my family. But one of my three children was not able to do that really well and felt this, uh, even though I never made him feel that way, uh, uh, felt this need to... Uh, I'll, I'll rephrase it. He 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 wasn't able to feel any worth if he couldn't do something equal to or greater than what his father had done, which is a really bad place for a child's mind to be. And I couldn't. It, you know, it's hard being green. I yeah. tell you, it's hard. It's hard being green. Yeah. Uh, because when people like, oh, you're Ronald Reagan's son, or you're Fritz Goldman's son. Or whatever. Okay, I, mm -hmm. I also have an identity, and I need an identity other than just being somebody's child. Like mm -hmm. when I go out and do events, and people always, you know, uh, introduce me. I remember I was doing a uh, an event in Bermuda a few years ago, and uh, and uh, Pope had a representative there, what have you, is with a Catholic group, and they introduced me as Ronald Reagan's son to a big applause. And I got up and I said, you know, I. I appreciate the applause. You're not applauding me. You're applauding who my parents is, my father. And I said, but I need to remind you, I also had a mother. Yeah. And I said, my mother was Jane Wyman. And I know this is a Catholic organization. So, you know, when you all die and go to heaven, when you see my father in heaven, look, look three floors above him for Jane Wyman. <laughs> the reason for that is because my mother was buried as a Dominican nun to the third order. And I wow. said, she is a much pl higher place in heaven than my father will ever have because of that. And of course, all these jaws just dropped because they didn't realize your mother was buried as a Dominican under the third order, full regalia. And, and, and so you need to remind people, you know, I also have a mother. But, you know, up until 1964, I was Jane Wyman's kid. And dad gave the speech, a time for choosing, and overnight I became Ronald Reagan's kid. So well, you had like you had a personality and a character hardy enough to say no. This is time for me to push back and stick up for myself, which I think is wonderful. But not all children deal with that dilemma the same way, is what I'm saying. I don't. We're all wired differently. Anymore. Yeah, exactly. Let's do the commercial, uh, Frissy. Okay, I can't wait. I've put all my savings into this. I hope it works. <laughs> Winning season returns at my bookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means survivor, super contestants, and squares. 
at MyBookie. It's time to celebrate the NFL season. Sign up now and make your first deposit to get a dollar-for-dollar match all the way up to a 1000 bucks, and grab yourself a free entry into the famed MyBookie Super Contest. To play in the contest, all you have to do is pick five NFL games against the spread and have a chance at $100,000 guaranteed in cash prizes. The best part is MyBookie has thousands of bets to choose from, the full NFL slate, the NBA playoffs, from live betting to uh, to championship futures. Every play you want to make is waiting at MyBookie. It's simple. Make your picks, win big, collect the dough. Use promo code. What's our promo code? Things. Mm -hmm. And double your first deposit now. It's a no-brainer. Your winning season begins today, Wheezy, only at my bookie. I'm going to talk to Mike about his book, On the Outside Looking In, which I read. And and Mike and I have been friends for a while when I I read this book. And uh, I'm going to first start by reading a review that you will find on Amazon from reader Beth Caspier. And she writes... This book is a very interesting autobiography of the life of young Michael Reagan. He is very frank about his mother, Jane Wyman, and his father, Ronald Reagan, and his stepmother, Nancy Reagan. His struggles with his child abuse by a coach and how he finally overcame these struggles are an inspiration to others fighting the same battles. And Mike, I want to tell you that it this is not just a great book. It's a book that I think about often whenever I encounter others in my life who are going through similar trials, abuse, shame, fear, secrets, adoption, a stepmother who was kind to the child while courting the father, and all of this as your family became increasingly high profile and your fears compounded that your truths would be revealed. How scary was it to write this book and how much of a relief was it to let it to let go of these secrets? You know, I tell everybody that it's... I will tell you, as I sit here with you today, it's still a work in progress. Somebody who has gone through that as I did, because remember, I was also part of uh, child pornography. The man who, who sexually abused me for when I was third, see, I'll just start, you fall back into it. That's why I said, it's still a work in progress. Uh, who molested me for a year, a day camp counselor from, uh, from a school I went to in third grade. Uh, also took nude photographs of me and had me, it took me to his apartment under the guise of taking me to dinner a few days later. And, uh, took this little mallet, nine years old, uh, had a, what I now know, make shift dark room uh, and uh, took a pair of tongs and put a piece of paper in the tongs and moved the paper from one pan to the second to the third what came up was a photograph of the Santa Monica Mountains. And it was magic to a nine-year-old. I'd never seen it, so would you like to do that? And he put the, uh, put the paper in the tongs and put the tongs in my hand, my left arm, and moved it from paper to paper, or pond to pond to pond or whatever. And what came up was a nude picture of me. And he put his hand on my shoulder and said, wouldn't your mother like to have a copy? And um, oh, I... I Excuse me, because it, it, you, it's not hard to get back in that moment. That's why I say it's still a work in progress. Uh, I, uh, I walked away from God. I walked away from my mother. I walked away from the family. Uh, uh, all within that, you know, I ended up repeating fifth grade and a couple of other things and uh, angry. And, and, but it's interesting. I, I really look back. My personality was built on that. As a as a way to defend myself against what was really going on inside, um, so in some way, you know, I, I've been able to use it in a positive way, radio and and the other things that I do, because I had to find a way to really really defend myself. But I was I was scared to death. Uh, I was scared to death. I I was scared. I was worried that people would think I was gay. Uh, so I would go down to downtown LA on a Friday night after stealing money out of my dad's wallet and buy prostitutes on Friday and Saturday night to prove myself that I wasn't. Figuring if I got arrested, I got arrested by prostitutes and, and what have you. Um, and when dad decided to get into politics, it scared that holy Jesus out of me because somebody would find a photograph or what have you. And you remember at the end of the book, one of my friends 
said to me, what happens if the story comes out before your, your dad nominated or elected president of the United States? I said, I wouldn't be alive for the swearing in because suicide would be an option, a true oh, option. And, and so I, I fought my way through that. And uh, my wife, Colleen, uh, didn't know what she was dealing with, but she was able to finally kind of bring me together. Uh, and I, I, I told her, I didn't tell anybody till you know, 1980s. I told my dad and Nancy, basically 1987 is when I, I told kind of the family. Uh, and uh, that was a, that was a tough thing. I was with my dad at the ranch and, uh, looking at his belt buckle, literally, literally throwing up, uh, everything and every, every porous in my face was ending up on his boots. And I kept on thinking to myself, don't look at your boots. Don't look at your boots. They're really nice boots and they're not nice right now. <laughs> and told my dad, my dad said, well, who is the guy I'll kick his butt? And, uh, Nancy said, he probably doesn't have a butt anymore, but, uh, he died in, uh, two, the man that did it died in 2000 and, Seven weeks, and I got a I got a letter while I was doing radio, uh, and from his uh, uh, sister-in-law, and said, you know, he Don had finally died, and you can now rest. You now rest because we've been able to destroy all of the photographs that he took. Those photographs lasted from 1953-54 till he died in 2007, and that's what these people do. They're like baseball cards to these people. And so I had every reason to fear what, in fact, I feared. Uh, and I felt if people found out what I knew about me, uh, they wouldn't support my dad. That, if, if you oh, really do, I have no friends from my childhood. So not only do you have the guilt of what happened to you, you have the even greater guilt of worrying about your father's career being in your hands. I can't imagine a more horrible set of circumstances for a child to be in. I'm so sorry, and I just appreciate your bravery. It, it happens about to it. too many, too many children, too many young boys. That it happens to girls. Always seem to get the you know you talk about girls and sexual abuse, but young boys. Uh, it's uh, uh, I, I deal with. I go out and speak on these issues and and what's going on with human sex trafficking and 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 what have you. Uh, it is. It's something. You have to learn to compartmentalize it, which is also a good idea for a child in a famous family. Put it in its own compartment. Mm -hmm. Don't let it control your life. It controlled my life up until Colleen said to me, quit blaming God, quit getting mad at your children, quit doing this, because I would get angry. And, and I would blame God. I would blame my dad, I would blame everybody for what had happened to me. Uh, and, and, and finally, when Colleen in 19, you know, gosh, 84, started really, you know, saying, stop it. And then I st that book that uh, Louise was talking about, I was offering, I think, $2 million at the beginning to write a tell-all book about my parents. And uh, they hadn't paid the money, but I basically agreed. And I started writing the treatment and uh, I got that part. I just couldn't do it. It wasn't their fault. And that's the first time I started dealing with the sexual abuse. But the chapter I talked about sexual abuse, I probably rewrote that chapter 400 times. And every time you go through it, and, and I will tell you probably the best therapy is writing about it. Mm -hmm. I think the best therapy in anything like that is really writing about, because you're more honest, I think, when you write about it. That's a means of therapy. It. Therapy, they offer, the, you know, the writing um, is, is part of therapy for yeah. many people. So, Mike, if I could just ask you, uh, Wheezy, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. the, the, uh, the aftermath of the conversation you had with your parents, were they willing to offer you psychological help? What, what course did they take after you revealed this information to them? They really, really nothing. I think Dad wrote in his diary, Mike's back. Uh, you oh. know, Maureen, Maureen said, you know, now I know why you didn't like green, because the, the place he took me to develop that had a green tinge to it. Now I love green, but I didn't like, you know, green was scary, scary to me. I couldn't even buy tennis shoes with green on the bottom of, of the shoes. Uh, 
So, what do you mean, green in this guy's house or the, 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 the photo the, lab? The, where he took me into the, the, oh. the dark room and a green, green oh. kind of uh, hue to it. So green scared, the, literally scared the hell out of me. And, but no, they didn't really, I, I think that generation mm -mm. really didn't know how to deal mm -mm. with those things. It's, uh, they, take it, they take it personal like they've done something wrong. They've really done nothing wrong. Tell what Nancy said when you when you had that conversation. Her comment to you. Are you talking about when I had with Dad and she did the Dad? I don't think he has a butt anymore. No, I I thought she said. Oh, she said. Oh, 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 oh! You're talking about I was when I was going to do the first interview on the book back in New York. Just before, uh, gosh, it was 1988. Back in New York, I was going to be interviewed by what's it, the big talk show host at the time. Uh, <laughs> On, on TV, and Nancy came to the house, and I opened the door. I said, like, what are you doing here? And she said, I understand you're going to be, oh, Donnie, I understand you're going to be on Donnie's show. You'll be talking about that book. I said, yes. She said, well, you know, when you get to that part in the book about, you know, that part in the book about the, I said, about being abused? Yes, that's the part. Well, you know, remind Donnie you, you were living with your mother when that happened. And I just, oh, I just shook my head. I shook my head. But then again, that's that generation of, you know, now we talk about it more openly, uh, maybe because of all the media that's out there today and social media and what have you. Uh, but that generation, you know, always tries to kind of dodge. It wasn't me, it was him type thing. So I really didn't get any help from other than my dad saying I'll kick his butt uh, from the family. Uh, so I had to really pull it all together. I went into therapy over in Santa Monica when I was writing the book because they gave free therapy to people during a period of time who've gone through that. So I did that. Um, but again, it's, it's just, it's something that you will never, ever get over because it defines, you know, eight years old, nine years old. It, it, it takes everything that you loved and knew about in life and destroys it in one fell swoop. I mean, I and think you your circuitry, your circuitry winds itself around that wound. And so everything that was going to be wired one, one certain way based on, you know, your personality, it's now kind of diverting around that wound and, 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 you know, giving host to that wound and, uh, informing everything. And, and I'm just wondering how it felt once you had written the book and now you're hearing from other boys have been abused, finding out it's, it's, it's not, it's not uncommon. Maybe one in five boys has been abused, maybe one in three girls has been abused. And so, and it, it, it completely robs a person of, of everything, all that safety that, that, that kids need. The, the biggest problem is not the child. Well, that's a major problem. There's still the same problem today. The parents accepting. The parents don't want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. And so I, the next book I wrote is the follow-up to that you know, twice adopted. Right. I don't know if you have that one. If you don't, I'll make sure you get a copy. We have a of link course. to it. <laughs> you might answer this in your book, Mike, twice, but I have an adopted brother. And I actually send that book because I think I've got the rest of the copies. I actually send that book to, uh, to parents and children, young men, women who've gone through it. I'll send them that book and I'll send one to their parents to read so they can kind of kind of understand it and and what have you. Uh, but it, it, you want to you want to feel you can go to your parents without them turning and running away. And it takes a child just I don't know if you know the numbers. It takes a child seven times to tell what's happened to them before the first person even listens. Wow. At what point do you stop listening? Mm. What a point. It takes a child seven times. So, and, and, and that's even with mom and dad. Because they feel like it's their failure somehow. Mm -hmm. Somehow their failure is so back on them. Right. And Let me ask so, you a question about being adopted. You're adopted. I, my, my stepbrother is adopted. And my stepbrother had a time in his life when he became obsessed with his biological past. He wanted mm -hmm. to know his biological history and decided to go on this uh, pilgrimage to find out everything he could about his uh, 
biological past and found them. And this was with the uh, complete uh, support of his adoptive parents. His adoptive father ended up being my stepfather. And after he had gone on this uh, mission, he came back and said to my stepfather, I am so very thankful to God that you are my parents, which was just the greatest thing you can say to a set of adopted parents, because that means their mission is complete, but it can go the other way. I just wonder if you had a similar circumstance in your life where your parents uh, where, where Jane and the president were supportive of you wanting to find out about your past? Uh, my dad was. I sent my mother a letter. I think maybe it, it deals, it's harder on moms than it is on dads. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't a failure type thing, uh, but I sent a letter to my mom uh, that's in that book, Twice Adopted, by the way, I think. Maybe it's even in the first one, I'm not sure. And uh, I will tell you, I found my birth brother, saved my life. I would be dead today if I had not found him and, and done that search. The reason I tell you is uh, Barry Lang, who's my birth brother, was actually a writer in Laverne and Shirley when he was 21 years of age. Wow. Lived out here. All the drugs are coming into Hollywood. He said, I'm 21. I'm making more money than God. He says, the drugs are coming in. I had a choice. Put it up my nose or leave. So he said, I left. He lives in Columbus, Ohio. And we're great, high, we're great college football fans. We talk 37 times a week during college football when they have it. And when I, he came out here and I spent three days with him, showing him the house. I grew up on, on Beverly Glen and the parks and all this kind of stuff. And as he's getting on the plane to fly back to Columbus, he says to me, by the, and he gave me, by the way, three scrapbooks that our birth mother had put together. She passed away in 85. Put together of my life. She had more, more pictures of my life than my mom and dad. <laughs> wow. But he got, he says to me, he says, if you've got our mother's side of the family's heart, you could be dead by 69. If you didn't, you'll live to be in your 90s. Start dealing with it now. I started the 81 aspirin. I was already in good shape, but I started making sure I was always in good shape, making sure I saw the doctors at least once a year, did the EKG, did all the all those tests and all of those things. At 70 years old, quadruple bypass surgery, pacemaker, two strokes, right, and a seizure. Barry flew out here from, from Ohio, spent a week with me with his wife at the hospital, what have you. But like Dr. Sato said to me, he said, yeah, you've done everything right, which probably saved your life. I had a resting heart rate of 41 when I went in the hospital. You've done everything right. He says, there's nothing I could have done. What got you is genetics. Yeah. And, and Barry, Barry, if he doesn't tell me that, I don't start a regiment. Hmm. I don't tell my doctor, which I did the next day. There, there's a, a big ethical argument now about uh, biological families having to reveal, and they can do it digitally now. You don't, you're not giving away anybody's identity, mm -hmm. but all these DNA markers so that an adopted child has a sense of his personal history, which I think I, I support that. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, absolutely, I'm absolutely for that. Yeah. Uh, they should be able to have that information so that, because if I don't do that, like Dr. Asano says, you're wheeled in the front and boxed out the back. <laughs> Even though he's a great doctor, he probably would save me anyway. But again, because I was in shape, you know, not many people have quadruple bypass surgery and seizures and all these other stuff with a resting heart rate of 41. So you found Barry. He was part of your investigation to find your biological family. I, I, I found Barry. Uh, I, I found Barry, and uh, we share the same uh, birth mother. I have a birth sister where I sh we share the same birth father, and she lives in uh, in Georgia. Were they happy to hear from you? Oh yeah, they knew about me. So yeah, they were very happy. To, very, they knew. That's great. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Barry found out in 1981 on the way to a Cincinnati Reds game from his mother, drove off the road. Because she, he always wondered, whenever my dad would come on TV, his mother would have everybody in the room just shut up. She'd grab a chair, sit in front of the TV, and watch the TV. So she thought when her, when her mom was out here uh, back in the 40s, that in fact she must have had an affair or something with Ronald Reagan because she, she's sitting there watching Ronald Reagan. 
she would go down to the she'd go down the newspaper stand on Saturdays and look at all the movie magazines. And when there was a story on Ronald Reagan and, and his family or Jane Wyman and his family, she would cut out the story or cut out the photos and take them to a photography studios and have prints made. And so she had ultimately about six, seven, or eight scrapbooks. And Barry wow. gave me like three of them or four of them when he came and saw me for the first time in my case. How old, and how old was, was your mom when you... I found out birth mother loved me too. How old that's, was your, mother, your birth mother when you were born? Oh, Irene, I don't, she would say, I, I, she was young. She had gotten pregnant by a, a married guy who mm -hmm. found out she was pregnant. He decided to join the military. Mm -hmm. And he went to Arizona. She chased him to Arizona. Uh, he got in trouble at uh, boot camp. They sent him to uh, sent him to France. That's another story. And he had six hundred dollars in his pocket. He gave her four hundred. Said, "Go to California, have that baby of yours." And Maureen and Dad and Mom were at Schwab's on Sunset. And Maureen was three. She walked up to the counter, and the pharmacist said, "What do you want, little girl?" She said, "I want a brother." Oh. And back in those days, a lot of people don't know, women, there's a lot of us who were adopted into Hollywood families because actresses couldn't get pregnant because they couldn't be pregnant on, on film. Right. That means yes. they had sex. So, they, so a lot of us were adopted into those families because actresses couldn't work if indeed they were pregnant. Mm -hmm. I love your story because the, the, the adoption uh, triangle doesn't always end as happily as yours. No. That is finding out that your birth mother really did love you. A lot of people feel resentment toward the birth mother because the birth mother had to get rid of the child and that suggested the child that didn't, I, I wasn't loved. I felt the same way, same way as your step stepbrother. Mm -hmm. you, you, why would somebody give me away? I mean, it's an easy, easy mm -hmm. question to come from uh, an adoptee. Absolutely. Why would you... if why would you get, was there something inherently wrong? Now, add on to that, what happens to me when I'm eight, nine years old. And I'm thinking God's just getting even with me because I was illegitimate. When I, went to, when I went to Chadwick School up on Palisade Peninsula, and I found out that I was adopted when I, when Maureen, I think I was four years or junior, Maureen was going to Chadwick before me. And I knew what she was going to get for Christmas because her birthday was you know, January 4th. And she came home. And I said, Merm, I know what you're getting for, for your birthday. And Maureen said, I don't want to know. I, but I know what you're getting. She said, if you tell me a secret, I'll tell you. She said, I said, you're getting a blue dress for, for your birthday. She said, you were adopted. And oh, we all looked at each other, went down to see Mom. What is that? What's adopted mean? <laughs> and, and Mom just went. Uh -oh. You probably saw that look. If you ever saw Falcon Crest, you probably saw that look. <laughs> after dark. And you went, don't ever go with that piece of highway. <laughs> but then, you know, people say you were chosen. So you're going to school saying, hey, I was chosen. And little boys go home to their parents say, hey, Mike Reagan says he was chosen. And parents say to the little kid, no, he was illegitimate. They adopted him. So the kids come back and I became the bastard Reagan at about seven oh, years God. old so i'm the illegitimate reagan i was the bastard reagan so i'm dealing with all those issues and it, it just it just snowballs into it again children are worse than cruel. parents sometimes. they're very they very are, cruel yeah so now they had my achilles heel so why right. would you give me away right and i think that uh child predators they do prey on kids that really need love and are, are, are searching for it Louise, the guy who molested me, taught me how to throw a football, baseball, taught me all the sports that you do with dad. Mm -hmm. I did with him after school. Mm -hmm. Complicated. It is. It's... Wheezy, let's uh, help Mike talk about the foundation because they're doing some pretty cool stuff up there. Right. Mike heads the Reagan legacy dedicated to the spread of democracy throughout the world. It's called the ReaganLegacyFoundation.org. You can go there. And... Talk a little bit about that for us, would you, Mike? Well, you know, I do a lot of stuff with the, with the Reagan Foundation up on the Hill. But I also formed my own back in, gosh, 2001, 2002, Reagan Legacy Foundation to carry on the legacy of my father. And the first thing we did was uh, we put together a program to provide scholarships to the men and women who serve aboard the USS Ronald Reagan and their family members left home, which nobody does. So we give a $1,000 scholarship to young men 
and women who serve on the Reagan and $2,000 scholarships to the family members left home who want to put in for the scholarship. We've been doing that since early 2000s, uh, and we love doing that. Used to go to the ship all the time, but now she's in Tokyo, Japan, not as easy, if you will. Uh, we expanded that uh, a couple of years ago uh, because we've done a lot of things. We, uh, we've been involved with Berlin. We got a plaque in the ground commemorating my dad's speech, 1987, tear down the wall speech. Uh, we have a Reagan exhibit at the Checkpoint Charlie Museum in Berlin, commemorating my dad being in Berlin that overlooks Checkpoint Charlie. And now what we have is a brick project uh, working with the uh, Airborne Museum in no at Normandy, France, St. Mary Glees, where you can go online to walkwaytovictory.com and order a brick and put the name of a loved one who served in the Second World War European theater on it and, and the group he served with. And you will have a brick put in his name there at St. Mary Glees in the ground through the walkways of the Airborne Museum. And those people who don't know about St. Mary Glees, first town freed by America at 4 a.m. in the morning of D-Day. So all the paratroopers were in fact uh, going. It is the 82nd, 101st Airborne's Gettysburg, if you will. And so to be able to see these bricks with the names of those who literally saved the world uh, by landing Normandy is, is amazing. Wow. Um, can you talk a moment about your relationship with your with your brother and sister, Ron and Patty? They're on different sides of the ideological spectrum. It's like, really? It kind of represents what we're all going through in America. And, and how do you guys navigate that path? You know, I, it's really interesting you asked me that today. Um, and I, I, I was talking to Patty earlier today about something. She's going to be on a television show on CNN here. Uh, and the, uh, we're talking. And I said, you know something? I told her a story that she's actually going to use uh, about our dad. Uh, and she said, I didn't know that. I said, well, the problem is you hadn't talked to me for 14 years. <laughs> I said, if you talked to me 14 years ago, I would told you that story. She said, oh, you're right. But we, we didn't have a relationship. Uh, after reading my dad's will, uh, no relationship at all. And uh, about two years ago, she called me. Uh, she was working on a project to do, uh, you know, the, the Reagan family before the world crashed in. Because there was a family there before the politics gets involved. And she said, would you help me with it? And can I interview? I said, I'm in. And so we started talking, having lunch and what have you. And yes, we're on different sides of the aisle, but you know, so we don't sit there and get all mixed up in. We, you know, talk about stuff we agree on. You know, there's stuff that I agree with her, what she says about Trump. I agree with that. Okay. You know, but I'm not going get, to get into this. I'm never going to talk to you again. And so it's nice to be able to have that conversation with her. Um, she came over for Christmas last year. I had been with her with Christmas since 1992. She called, wondered if she could come over and has been part of Christmas. Ron, I haven't really talked to uh, at all. He hasn't reached out, and I don't know how to, how to find him. Uh, but it's nice to rekindle a relationship that never was that great. You know, the reality is blended families don't always get along with each other. Uh, it's not easy. You know, Nancy... You know, I was Jane's boy, and that wasn't something that made Nancy very happy. Uh, so she didn't want her kids really being with me very much because I was Jane's kid, and Nancy really never got over the fact that Dad was married once before. How were the president and Jan uh, rather the president and Nancy with your children? Did they feel like real grandchildren? I will tell you that the the Cameron and Ashley felt like dad was really a great granddad, uh, but he wasn't able to spend a lot of time with them, mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately. Uh, it would have been nicer if he, he could have. Uh, but again, I was Jane's boy, um, not Nancy's. And so we would go over to the, we'd go over to his offices and have lunch over there. There was one day, went over there, uh, during a Christmas uh, time, and they're going to bring singers in. And this one, Dad had Alzheimer's, but he still go to his office. 
and uh, went over there and had lunch with, uh, I think it was Ashley Coley and I. And we hadn't been invited to the basic sing-along. And dad came out and he went from the Alzheimer's moment to being really aware of what's going on. And we sit and invite us to sit down with everybody to the shock of the staff because they had to bring in chairs. And then he reached out and he grabbed, grabbed uh, Ashley and put his arms around Ashley, gave her this big hug. And he looked at me and he said, you know, why I hug her. I said, no, dad, why? Because she's a she. <laughs> and, 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 and as soon as he said that, he was back into the Alzheimer's and they took him in. Mm -hmm. And so, and I was saying to Patty today, I said, you know, we, you really look at it. We had, there were some magical moments that we have that nobody else ever had. And instead of looking at the harder moments, maybe the moments we wish we would have had that we never had, look at the moments we got. And I told her about a jacket my dad gave me, you know, I went back to White House on that, that when I was going to be interviewed about the book. And I was on the same trip and we were going to get on Air Force One and fly back for Easter. And my dad asked me to come into his changing room at the White House and he gave me this nice leather jacket, outdoor ranch guy jacket. He tried this on, tried it on. He said, yeah, it fits. I said, well, you and I are the same size, 44 regular. And he said, looks good. I said, well, thank you very much. Keep it. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, one condition. I said, what's the condition? He said, I have no idea who the hell gave me that jacket. <laughs> so oh, wow. please, please, when we're together, don't ever wear it. <laughs> yeah. let, let, let me, I, we started this conversation out talking about the book about James Baker, who was this huge uh, person in American politics. Was there one person that you got to know as a young man in the White House that you had a, a, a sort of an affectionate relationship with? One person you have the fondest memories about? Yeah, Rex Scout, and they named his dog after him. They <laughs> Rex the little dog. Yeah, Rex was great. The, the person you want to know are the ushers. Forget oh. all the other guys. You got to know the ushers. You know the ushers, you got to, yeah, licked at the White House. I mean, to this day, I'd call the ushers and get in. Uh, you know, so I used to have, it, the relationship I had with all of them was really, you know, pretty good. I mean, you look at, dad went through some stuff, like every president goes through some stuff. It's the way you handle it, you know, is, is really the end, end result of it all. And it was good when James Baker came in and, and, and did the things he, he had to do and did. Uh, Duberstein coming in. You know, when, when he was truly needed. Maureen was great. Uh, Maureen lived at the White House a lot. You know, they, the We Are the World, the hands across the White House would never have happened without Maureen. Maureen's the one that circumvented the whole staff and said, uh-uh, we're going to do this and got dad. You know, so they opened up the gates of the White House through the hands across America with the We Are the World. So it's everybody working together in conjunction that helps get everything done. Uh, not one person. I mean, James Baker was great, needed for his position. Duberstein, Maureen, others that were in the room. Um, it's it's it, if you remember Dan, every speech he gave was about we, not I. You couldn't, you cannot afford to have eyes in the room. You got to have we in the room, not eyes in the room. So, and what so, would your dad have said about Trump? Uh, he probably wouldn't. He probably wouldn't have said anything because he wasn't that kind of a guy. He wouldn't have said. He would have, you know. He he did his tour, and it's also a different time. I mean, when he was president, it was ABC, NBC, and C, I'm sorry, ABC, CBS, and Fritz Coleman. Um, <laughs> yeah, boy, the place has gone downhill since now then. He got all the social media out there, but he never. Remember, he never spoke ill. Dad always said, "Find the good." I want to read a quote to close this out from your dad about that very thing. And I only do this not in a political sense, but in contrast of character, if you'll permit me to say that. Your dad said, whatever else history may say about me when I'm gone, I hope I appeal to your best hopes and not your worst fears. That seems to resonate with me right now, especially you know, Fritz, we live in a world, and I talk to people about this, we live in a world today where 
the John Kennedys and the Ronald Reagans may never ever win the, the nomination of their parties anymore. Man, that's that, that's sad. Like, and Dad looked for the better angels. We need to look for the better angels. Well, I got to tell you, I, I am so surprised and happy at the way this went, Mike. We didn't have to get political. You were so forthcoming about your personal life. And I think a lot of people are going to take some great thoughts for their own personal circumstances out of what you revealed to us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Seriously, thank you for, thank you for having me on, both of you. And I've known both of you for a long time and, and what have you. And anytime you want to do it again, and uh, I'm available. And again, anybody out there who's gone through some of these things, uh, find a compartment to put those things in. Don't let it control your life, but don't forget it either because you can use that to help others. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, here come the closing credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter where we are at MediapathPod and on Facebook where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediapathPodcast. I want to thank Michael Reagan for being with us and sharing so much of your story with us. We greatly appreciate you. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, Mosey Masenko, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Brian Bennett, and you. I'm Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman. We will see you along the media path.